So, so real questions, biblical answers. This is week three here, um, and I, I hope... I hope that this series of trying to answer difficult questions has been a challenge to you. Um, I certainly know it has been for me. Um, even if it hasn't been for you, it has been. It, it has been. It's been a challenge for me to take these sometimes very difficult subjects and try to think biblically about them um, and and really dive into what does the Bible say? What does the Bible really teach? And how does it direct us as we start answering these, these difficult questions? So I hope it's been good for you. I hope it's been a challenge for you because it has been a challenge for me. And now we're at week three and we're going to try to continue to dig deeper into real issues. Um, and you know what? I just realized I said I was going to do something today and I haven't done it yet. Um, but along with the, the PRC, uh, I mean the source, Pregnancy Resource Center, the, the bottle drive has come like it's the bottles are back there in the foyer. Um, one thing I wanted to say is, y'all, does anybody listen to the news, watch news, hear anything that's going on in our country? There's something pretty massive. <laughs> no, <laughs> I don't believe you. Um, there is something massive taking place in our country right now, something that I believe is a win. And not just a small win, this is a great win, and not for Republicans or for Democrats, this is a win for life. Um, so, Many of you have heard about Roe versus Wade and the, the leaked opinion that's coming out uh, from the Supreme Court that it's going to be overturned. Y'all, that's not a small thing. That is huge. So what does that mean practically? Well, that means it's going to be sent back to the states to where they can determine when life begins. They can determine what is and is not allowed. So what we're saying is life is going to be protected in the states. There are many states who are already preparing to, to, or have already prepared to put measures in place to outlaw abortion. Y'all, we're talking about unborn babies being saved. That is no small thing. That is amazing news. And just so y'all know, that's not Jared talking politics. That's Jared talking biblical truth. Um, life begins at conception. I mean, we just saw that, that clip from, uh, from, from the source talking about how we are knit together in our mother's womb, that God knew us in our unformed parts. Like before our bodies were even formed in the womb, God knew us. This is not a political issue. This is a moral and a life issue. So this is a win. And I said I was going to bring that up. I'm not going to preach on that, I promise. But, you know, life begins at conception. I think the Bible's clear on that. And we need to defend life as much as possible. So... Um, I'm very thankful that that opinion has been, I don't know if I'm thankful it's been leaked, but I'm thankful that it sounds like it's coming. So um, thank God for that. So anyway, real questions, biblical answers. Today we're going to dive into another topic, but this one, uh, I don't believe this topic that we're diving into, can we, I don't think we can afford to gloss over this. This is not something minor. This is no minor issue. Instead, this is, this is where our hope is. This is where our hope comes from. Today we're going to dive into what the cross means. We're going to talk about why do we need the cross. Specifically, the question I want to answer today uh, that I feel, and I think this is a fun question. Did Jesus want to die on the cross? Did Jesus want to die on the cross? I think that's an interesting question. Did Jesus desire the cross in some way? 
But before we get to this question, um, I, I told somebody I wanted to go kind of rapid fire because I fielded not, not just the questions we're going to answer throughout the series, but, but we had a whole host of other questions, and I don't have time to get to all of them, um, nor, nor do I think I'm talented enough to write a sermon on all of these. So I'm going to go rapid fire through about a handful of questions, so listen really fast, okay? Um, so, whew, yeah, listen fast, because I'm going to talk fast. Um, so... What was Jesus' last name? I thought that was a fun question. Somebody asked me, what is Jesus' last name? I can answer that really quick. Jesus' last name was one of two things. You could either say it was Jesus of Nazareth, because he would have been known by the place he was from, or it was Jesus, son of Joseph, one or the other. Because in that time, you were either known by where you were from or who you were from, so it was either your father's line or the city you were from. So his name is either Jesus of Nazareth or Jesus, son of Joseph. Okay? And now you all are thinking, well, he's not really the son of Joseph, but he was legally. So Jesus, son of Joseph, was his name. Now, what is the Bible for was another question question we, we got uh, that I was asked. And that one we could talk about. We could spend a tremendous amount of time on. But what is the Bible for? I believe that the Bible is for communicating God's glory, for revealing God's glory to us. And it specifically does that through God's redemptive plan for humanity. So it shows us God's glory by showing his tremendous love for us. That's what the Bible's for. It's for revealing God to us. How much worse could it get before God intervenes in the world? Another question that was asked. Um, and the reason I want to just go th quickly through this is because I understand the question, but I think it might be a little misplaced. Um, so neither here nor there. I understand the question, but the answer to the question, how much worse could it get, is it could get a lot worse. It could get a whole lot worse. Um, that said, God has intervened, and Jesus is the solution, and nothing else is sufficient. That's what we need. And just so you know, the reason I say it could get a lot worse is because as you read the Bible... You read through especially some Old Testament texts where it really gets into what the culture and the society was like in that time. You read, go read about Sodom and Gomorrah and you'll see how much worse it could get. It could get a lot worse. So there's the answer to that question. Someone asked about the problem of pain, which I thought was a fantastic question. I wish we had time to do it. Um, and I also wish I had the intelligence to do it. So there, I'll insult myself. I don't know that I'm smart enough to, to really give a good answer to that. So what I want to do is I want to give you another book recommendation. I recommended two last week. Um, this book, it's called The Problem of Pain. You see how that works? Like somebody asked about the problem of pain. Here's a book titled The Problem of Pain by C.S. Lewis. Um, this book is fantastic. C.S. Lewis is far smarter than I am. He's far more articulate than I am, and I know he's writing, so, but still, he puts into words what I can't. He does a fantastic job. So if you ever want to know, like, how, do we, how, does Christians, how should we respond to the problem of pain, right? There's pain and suffering in the world, but God is all-powerful and all-good. So how, does that, how do those things exist together? Read this book, okay? Um, there, if you want to borrow it, I'll even let you borrow it, because I think it's that good. So... Um, there's my answer on that. But today, we're going to get to the cross. Today, we're going to look at the cross. Specifically, did Jesus want to die on the cross? And in order to answer that question, I think that there are at least three truths of Scripture that we have to understand. Uh, I mean, these, at least these three things. To understand, did Jesus want to die on the cross? We need to understand these three things. First, the cross was God's plan A for redeeming mankind. The cross was always plan A. It was never plan B. There was never another option. Because sometimes we almost treat the cross as if it was God's backup plan. Like, uh-oh, well, like man sinned, and now God's sitting here like, oh, man, I wasn't looking for that to happen. Now what are we going to do? See, sometimes we almost treat it that way. I think about it like this. Um, I'm old, older now. I've been told I'm not young anymore. Um, so what I, what I remember was, you all remember Worlds of Fun? They had the Orient Express 
You remember that roller coaster? If you remember that roller coaster, put your hand up. Oh, wow, that's most of you. Awesome. Anybody love the Orient Express? A few of you? Any of you got stuck upside down on the Orient Express? No, that's why y'all love it. Good. Okay, I remember that ride, and I remember it as, as a kid. I remember going up to this ride, and it's all, I think sometimes this is how we think about the cross. We're going up, and plan A is to get on the ride. Plan A is to go through the loops and go upside down and do all that fun stuff. That's plan A. But there's always plan B, because I remember at the top of the steps there, when you're going to the Orient Express, there was a sign that said chicken exit and had the big chicken next to it. We almost treat the cross like it's God's chicken exit. Like, well, I, didn't, I, I don't know that that's really the way I want it to go, so I'm going to make a plan B, and we're going to go down these steps and go this way. That wasn't God. That's not how he acted. This was always plan A. The cross was always the way it was supposed to head. We find that Jesus' death, specifically his death on the cross, was God's plan from the very beginning. From the very beginning. This is what God planned. Uh, just an example. Let's go back. Let's just go back to the close to the beginning of the Bible. We're going to go three chapters in Genesis three fifteen. Genesis three fifteen. It says, as God here is spelling out what's going to happen as a result of sin. Here's what He says to the woman. He says, "I will put hostility between you and the woman." Or He says to the serpent, "I'm sorry. I will put hostility between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head, and you will strike his heel." Okay. Some of your translations may say that uh, He will crush your head, but you will strike his heel. Which is a fine translation. There's nothing wrong with that because the word uh, strike there indicates striking by, by pressure. So it's crushing the serpent's head. Now, God says here in the very beginning that there's going to come a time when one of Eve's descendants, by the way, that's Jesus, one of Eve's descendants would crush the serpent, would crush the devil, but will experience a wound in the process. This is all the way back at the beginning of the Bible. That God says a descendant of Eve will crush the plans of the enemy, will crush the devil, and will take a blow to the heel in the process. Now, using hindsight to our advantage, as I think we should here, we know that Jesus was this descendant, right? We know that Jesus was this descendant of Eve, and that the blow that he struck to the devil was defeating sin, and the strike to his heel was the cross. We know We know, using hindsight, that that's what was being said clear back at the beginning of the Bible. Jesus felt the wounds, but he defeated Satan. And this is the plan that God speaks of all the way back in Genesis 3. Clear back at the beginning. But if that's not far enough back for you to show you that this was God's plan A, well then let's let's just go to the New Testament and see what Paul writes. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 10. And just so you all know, this isn't what we normally do. Usually we have one text, but since this is a topic, we're kind of bouncing all over the place. Most of these texts will be up here, and I've highlighted a few, uh, few parts of them just for the sake of this sermon. So Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 10. It says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace that he richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. Now, those underlying texts are important. First of all, um, our redemption, our redemption is through the blood of Christ, right? So through Jesus' sacrifice, through his blood. That's where we find it. Now, this is something I've touched on the last two weeks at least, that redemption is found nowhere else. 
The Bible is very clear that Jesus has an exclusive claim on your redemption. He has purchased you. Nothing else can. Nothing else is sufficient. Instead, it's Jesus' blood. Now, what has quickly become one of my favorite lines in the Bible is, um, is in John chapter 6, verse 68, when Peter, uh, when he's asked by Jesus if he and the other disciples want to turn back and stop following also. I love what Peter says here. He says, Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. Some translations say you alone have the words of eternal life. It's not found anywhere else. Peter's looking at this saying, okay, we could turn back, but where are we going to go? Nobody else has the solution. Our redemption is in Jesus in nowhere else. That's it. Peter recognizes that nothing else can bring life. But further, he says this mystery, here in Ephesians 1, he says this mystery, the forgiveness of trespasses according to God's grace, it was, he says, purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time. It was planned. This was God's plan for the right time. God knew what he was doing. It wasn't a surprise. It wasn't an emergency plan that he had to make up. This was the plan he made for just the right time. So he sent Jesus when he needed to be sent. This was no mistake. Instead, it was God's perfection that ordained the times. God knew what to do and when to do it. Just a little bit later in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 8 through 11, it says, This grace was given to me, the least of all the saints, to proclaim to the Gentiles the incalculable riches of Christ and to shed light for all about the administration of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. This is so that God's multifaceted wisdom may be known, may be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. But listen to this verse 11. It says, this is according to the eternal purposes in Christ Jesus our Lord. The eternal purposes. You know what happened before eternity passed? The answer is nothing. Like, nothing happened before. And God knew. God knew. And it was part of his eternal purpose to be accomplished in Christ Jesus. God knew exactly what he was doing. The cross has always been plan A. As a matter of fact, I don't believe there is a plan B. God, from eternity past, planned to do this. And just so you know, it's not just Paul that writes this. You go over to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 to 21. It says, For you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for you. Through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Now again, these underlying sections. Okay, first he says you were redeemed. You know what that means? Uh, the word redeemed is an important one in, in the Greek. And I just want to touch on this for a moment. It says lutrao. Lutrao, okay, is the word in the Greek. And it means to redeem or to release on receipt of ransom. Release on paying of a ransom. So what, Paul, or what Peter here is arguing, he's saying... You were held captive. You were held captive by your sin. You, you were in prison. You couldn't get out on your own. Instead, what you needed was somebody to pay your ransom, to purchase you back. That's what you needed. That's what I needed. We were dead in our sins. We don't have the capability of paying our own price. But God paid your ransom. God paid your ransom. 
And how did he do it? It says right there, you were redeemed from your empty way of life with the precious blood of Christ. With the precious blood of Christ. Your ransom was paid through Jesus' death. Your ransom was paid as Jesus died for you. That's how you were purchased. That was the price for you. Your blood wasn't sufficient because you're a sinner. Jesus' blood was perfect. Spotless, the spotless lamb, Peter says. Jesus' perfect life is what it took. But see, then look at verse 20 there. He says, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. This was not an emergency plan. Before God spoke anything into creation, before the world existed, before the foundations of the world, God foreknew. God knew what he was going to do. He knew that Christ was going to come. He knew that he was going to have to sacrifice his own son to save a lost world of sinners. He knew it from the very beginning. This was not a surprise. The cross was never plan B. This was God's purpose from the very beginning. And this is important to understand. When we say, did Jesus want to die on the cross? What we have to know is that God, before anything existed, before any of that, he planned for his son, Jesus, to come to live the perfect life that we can't live, to die the death that we deserve. It was always the plan. It was not a surprise. It was not an emergency change. This is what God intended. So the cross was God's plan A for redeeming mankind. But the second thing we need to understand is that Jesus was completely committed to the Father's plan for mankind's redemption. Jesus was completely committed to this plan. I mean, we can see how he was personally committed to the Father's, to the Father's will. I mean, 1 John chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, it says, Children, let no one deceive you. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he, just as he is righteous. The one who commits sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God was revealed for this purpose, to destroy the devil's work. Okay. Destroying the devil's work is the very thing for which, God, or for which Jesus existed. This is what he came to earth for. Sorry, I shouldn't say the reason for which he existed. The reason for which he came. Let's say it that way. Because he existed because he's God. But this is the reason for which he came, that he lived here on earth as a man. See, many people spend their entire lives... Their entire lives, searching for their, their I'm going to put this in air quotes, their calling, right? Uh, I mean, people spend their entire lives looking for the thing that they're supposed to do, only to never find the thing that they, they believe that they live for. You all ever know anybody like that? Like, I just don't know my purpose in life. You ever heard somebody say that? See, that's not what Jesus was feeling here. Jesus knew his purpose for life. Knew his purpose for existing as a man. For living as a man. See, some people, you know, you look at people that work at a certain job and you're like, yeah, man, it's almost like they were made for that. Well, you know what Jesus was, I, I can't say made because Jesus was not created. We talked about that last week. But you know what he came as a man for? To destroy the devil's work. He came to destroy sin. That's what he came for. Further, we see Jesus' commitment here in the words he, spe- he speaks. Okay, we see his commitment in the words he speaks. If we go over to Matthew chapter 16, Matthew chapter 16, he says, from the beginning on, or from then on, Jesus began to point out to his disciples that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, to be killed and to be raised on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Oh no, Lord, this will never happen to you. (laughs) First of all, just think about this scene. You know who Jesus is? 
Like, we know who Jesus is, and apparently they knew who Jesus was. They knew he was the Messiah. And now, their rabbi, the Messiah, he's telling them, look, this is what's going to happen. This is what has to happen. He says it's necessary that these things take place. And Peter's like, no, 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 I don't think you understand, Jesus. That can't happen. No, no, that's not the way it works. Verse 23, Jesus turned and told Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me because you're not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. See, the reason I bring up Peter's response here is because Peter responds much like we would. Much like I think we would. This is a guy they have, understand, Peter's committed his life to following Jesus. He's left his home, he's left his job, he's left everything behind to go follow after Jesus. And now Jesus is saying, guys, um, I'm going to be handed over, I'm going to suffer many things, and I'm going to die. (laughs) Peter says, I don't think so, Jesus. Uh -uh. That's not okay, because we gave up everything to follow you. Like, that can't be what's going to happen. Besides, you're supposed to be a political leader, right? No, Jesus says there's something much bigger than that at stake. Peter responded a lot like we did, like we would. But Jesus says that he is going to suffer and die after Peter rebukes him. Jesus' response is significant. He calls Peter Satan, says that he's a hindrance to his mission to fulfill the Father's will. Jesus' mission was what? To fulfill the Father's will. To do what God had sent him to to do. And again, understand, Peter was trying to do good. He was trying to do good. The problem was that Jesus knew what the Father's will was, that it was the Father's will for him to go, for him to suffer many things, for him to die, and for him to be raised. And he wasn't going to let anything, including one of his best friends and one of his closest followers, he wasn't going to let him stop him. Jesus was completely and totally committed to God's plan, to his will. Because think about this. As Jesus was preparing to be arrested, to suffer these many things. Now, couldn't Jesus have raised up an army to stop this? Could Jesus have done that? Maybe that's speculation, and maybe that's not helpful, but, uh, I mean, I believe he could. I mean, he had already amassed a pretty pretty sizable following, so I, I believe he could have had people defend him. So, of course he could. At the very least, couldn't he have turned to his disciples? Couldn't he have turned to his closest followers, his friends, and said, I need you guys to back me up here? These guys were, I, think, I believe they were willing to die for Jesus. They were willing to go to war for him. I mean, you see, when Jesus is arrested, actually Peter pulls out a sword and he starts hacking people's ears off and stuff. Clearly his followers were willing to defend him. But Jesus says, no, I'm committed to what God desires here. I'm going to follow, uh, follow after what he has designed for my life. I'm going to pursue his plan for my life. So he says, it's necessary that I go and suffer and die and be raised. It's necessary. Jesus is completely committed to the Father's plan. Even as he hung on the cross, even as Jesus suffered, he still showed his commitment to God's will and God's plan. I mean, think about Matthew 27. Now, this is a long section, but I want to read all the way through it. We'll come back and talk about it. Matthew 27, verses 38 to 44. We see Jesus' commitment here, even as he's on the cross. It says, Then two criminals were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. Those who passed by were yelling insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him and said, He saved others, but he cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now, if he takes pleasure in him. For he said, I am the Son of God. In the same way, even the criminals who were crucified with him taunted him. Just think about this scene. Jesus is being mocked. He's been beaten. He's now being 
tortured to the point of death. All while people around him are saying, yeah, sure you're the son of God. Sure you are. Uh huh. Prove it. Come down off the cross if you're the son of God. I mean, if God really takes pleasure in you like he would his son, can't you come down off the cross? Can't you do anything here, Jesus? Come on. And to this, Jesus responds, not by calling down an army of angels, not by calling on his disciples to come help him, not even by levitating and coming off the cross. By the way, I believe he could have done that because we see him at his ascension. It says that he started floating and all of a sudden he's up behind the clouds. So couldn't Jesus just have like pulled himself off the cross and like come down to the ground and like, now shut your mouths? Couldn't he have done that? I sure think he could have. But he didn't. Jesus was so committed to the plan that even while he's tolerating these insults, this slander, these, these, the mocking, the taunting, he died for you. He was so committed to God's plan that he would, he would do anything, even to the point he died on the cross. Perfectly committed to the Father's plan. So could Jesus then use his authority to come off the cross? Absolutely. But instead, he stayed. He stayed and completed God's redemptive plan for mankind. He was completely committed to the Father's plan for mankind's redemption. So we see God had this plan. Jesus was committed to it. The third thing we need to understand whenever we answer the question, did Jesus want to die on the cross? We have to understand that Jesus was still completely human. He was fully man. Like, I don't believe it was like somehow he was not really completely man. No, Jesus experienced everything, everything just as a man would. I mean, we see that all over Scripture. Um, we talk about the way Jesus experienced, experienced temptation. Hebrews 4.15 answers that really easily. It says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, with our weaknesses, plural, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Clearly, Jesus experienced what it meant to be a man. Clearly, he was tempted in every single way. The Bible makes that abundantly clear. But not only did he experience temptation, Jesus experienced pain, like real physical pain. Okay, let's just, let's just talk about the physical pain for a moment. Jesus, we learn from Scripture, he was beaten, he was scourged, and then he was crucified. Now, this is an undisputable historical fact. Undisputable historical fact. As a matter of fact, I think I was talking to Lane about this this morning. Um, it's so widely accepted that even most secular scholars will not debate whether Jesus actually lived. As a matter of fact, one scholar wrote, um, he wrote this. He said that Jesus was executed under Pontius Pilate is a firm fact of history. Like, there was a guy named Jesus of Nazareth. And he was executed under Pontius Pilate. That is an undisputable fact of history. Completely grounded in not just Christian history, but also secular history. That is a fact, and you, you can't argue that. So, what we can't argue is the meaning, and we'll get to that here in just a moment. But if he was executed by crucifixion, let's understand how much pain he went through, at least to the best of our ability. Um, according to uh, a Roman philosopher named Cicero... Uh, he lived just before the time of Jesus. He said this about crucifixion. He said the most, he called it the most cruel and disgusting penalty in which victims died in pain and agony and suffered the worst extreme of the torture inflicted on slaves. Cicero actually pointed out that at his time, at his time this was rarely done uh, amongst the common Roman citizens. and said this would have only been done if you were a slave and had no rights. Jesus was executed like a slave. 
because of the incredible pain and the agony. He called it a disgusting penalty. Uh, the historian Seneca, um, he was talking about how not all crucifixion was the same. You know, we talk about the cross and we think about something like this. Maybe it has another vertical piece on the top and we think about it that way. Whatever. Okay. So we think about the cross. But he's talking, uh, he was writing about how not all crucifixion was done the same. Different areas or different people groups would, would use crucifixion, but they would do it in slightly different ways. But uh, here's what he says. He says, I see before me crosses, not all alike, but differently made by different peoples. Some hang a man head downwards. Some force a stick upwards through his groin. Some stretch out his arms on a forked gibbet. I see cords, scourges, and instruments of torture for each limb and each joint. But I see also death. Jesus is saying, look, the way crucifixion was done may have varied, but the point is it was torturous and it always resulted in the victims dying. Always resulted in them dying. Now, we can sit here and we can look at the parts of the cross, right? I mean, I actually love that this is back here because it's a reminder. Hopefully, it's a reminder for you also what, what Jesus paid, like the penalty, like, like what he went through because he loves you. Like, I, I, hope, I hope that that's what this cross is, right? But we, we see this and we see, we see the crossbar, right? And we know how painful that would have been to have his nails driven into the tree, like into the cross, and we see that crossbar and we think, yeah, that would, have, that would have been awful. Or we see the vertical piece goes into the ground and we know, well, Jesus had been beaten. He had been bloodied. His back was raw. It had been ripped open. And now he's hanging on that cross against that rough wood, moving up and down, feeling every bit of pain. But there's a, there's a part that I think we miss every once in a while. And this is just to, to again, reinforce the idea of, of Jesus experiencing physical pain. And that's this, this little piece. Can you all see this? This little piece right here. You see this? This doesn't look like much. Um, it kind of looks like a place to put his feet. Well, his feet were nailed to the cross, so why is that there? Well, his feet would have been nailed in such a way that he could barely reach that. Just barely reach that. And be able to put just enough pressure on it to raise his body up and down. Now, why would they do that? Well, because if they didn't, what would happen is the pressure of your own weight would cause you to asphyxiate and die in just a f- hours at the most. It would cause you to die rapidly, but that's not what they wanted. They wanted a deterrent, so they wanted you to live and suffer. So they would give you something that you could put a little bit of pressure on, raise up, get just enough air that you don't die. See, victims would often, on the cross, remain alive for days. And whenever death did finally come, it would come because of suffocation or blood loss. Usually one of those two things. So clearly... I hope you get the point. Jesus was human, and he experienced real human pain. We can't even begin to grasp how much pain Jesus experienced. But it wasn't just physical pain that he experienced. He also experienced mental pain, real mental anguish. I mean, first, when when crucifixion was done, crosses were often placed by well-traveled areas, so the people passing by, they would be deterred from from practicing the same crime, right? That's why the placard is there at the top, describing the crimes that the the victims, those being crucified. I I hesitate to call them victims because some of them, it's capital punishment. I understand. I'm not trying to get into that this morning. We don't have time for that. But the placard at the top would describe the crime. Why? So the people passing by would read what happened, and they would be deterred from doing the same thing, right? That was why they were placed there. So just think about the embarrassment that this would bring, not just for the person who is dying on the cross, but also the families of those who were crucified, especially in a culture that was so heavily reliant on families. 
mean, think about it. If, if I happened to do something and it got me crucified and there was this sign post and they put me out here by I-29 so that everybody coming by would see what Jared had done. Think about the embarrassment that would bring for my wife and my children and my parents. They did it on purpose. It was done for a reason. So think about that mental anguish, knowing that you caused a tremendous embarrassment for your family. Enduring hardship for your family. Even more, Jesus in the garden, just hours before his crucifixion. Here's what happens in Matthew 26, verses 36 to 38. It says, Then Jesus there and pray, taking along Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. He said to them, I am deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake with me. And this word grieved, where it says, I am deeply grieved. Now, we know he was sorrowful. We know he was troubled. But this word, I am deeply grieved, it's, the, it's another fun Greek word I want to bring out real quick. It means paralipos. Paralipos. Okay? And this word, this word, it means to be very sad, to be deeply grieved. And clearly what it's saying is Jesus feels this anguish. But what we miss is the word right before there is the word for soul. So Jesus says, in my soul, I am deeply grieved. Like in the very inner part of who I am, in the very depths of me, I am saddened. And he says, to the point of death. Jesus experienced every kind of pain. As a matter of fact, I think the NLT, um, trying to pick up on what, what the Greek says here, I think they do a really good job with this. It said, he d- doesn't just say, I am deeply grieved to the point of death. It says, my, co- my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. My soul is crushed with grief. Church, if we're going to answer the question, did Jesus want to die on the cross? We have to understand that God had a plan A, and that was the cross. Jesus was committed to that plan, but we also have to remember Jesus was completely human. Jesus was going to experience this pain, physical pain, mental pain, spiritual pain. He felt all of it. So, did Jesus want to die on the cross? (laughs) You ready for the answer? I'll I'll be as straightforward as I can. The answer is yes. And no. Ha! How you, how you like that? Is Jared dodging the question? No, I think the answer is yes and no. Let's start with the no. Jesus wasn't out looking to experience pain. I don't know many people who desire to be hurt physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally, whatever. It's just not there. People don't desire that. Instead, that pain came as a result of becoming like us. Not because of anything Jesus did himself, not because he deserved to experience that pain in some way. So pursuing that pain would be foolish to, I mean, to be like, yeah, oh, I really want to experience the physical pain of dying on a cross. How foolish would that be? And Jesus was anything but a fool. So do I think Jesus wanted to die on the cross? No, I don't think he wanted to experience that kind of pain. But yes, he did want to die on the cross because, well, even more than his own life, Jesus desired to obey the Father's will. He desired to obey the Father and carry out His good, pleasing, and perfect will. And see, this is where things get really good. It gets really good here, okay? I think there are two primary reasons He was so committed to this. And I just want to look at these real quick before we end our time together. I think there are two primary reasons He wanted to, He was so committed to the Father's will. First, first reason I think He did is because Jesus knew that the Father, that God the Father, was worthy of all glory, all honor, and all praise, and he wanted to tell the world about it. Jesus knew how awesome God was. Look, if any of you in this room have ever been totally awestruck by who God is, I don't know if you've ever experienced that. I suspect many of you have. Um, If you have ever experienced that, 
then you know how much you desire to make that known. Like, I, I remember the first time I ever realized, like, just how awesome, how incredible God is. Um, and I remember just, like, I, I wanted more. I wanted to know more. I wanted to grow. And not only that, I wanted to tell other people. Because in that community, then we could grow together. I remember how desperately I wanted to know more about this awesome God. And honestly, I couldn't shut up about it. Most of you don't have a hard time believing that. Um, But all I wanted was to know him more, to serve him better, to walk more closely with him. And Jesus clearly knew God intimately, not only because he was God, but we see the intimacy, the, the closeness, the nearness he has with his father. We see how much he loved the father. So, of course, he wanted to know God's glory and to make God's glory known. Of course he did. But see, Jesus also knew something that I think, I I hope, will bring you hope today. And that is that the greatest display of God's glory, the greatest display of God's glory is not anything in creation. It's not, the greatest display of God's glory is not a Mount City sunset. I brag about the sunsets here, like, that's awesome. And it's amazing to see. That is not the greatest display of God's glory. Look, we just prayed over those two sweet girls this morning. A baby is not the greatest display of God's glory. Don't get me wrong. A baby's amazing. Absolutely amazing. That is not the greatest display of God's glory. It said the greatest way Jesus could glorify the Father, the greatest picture of God's glory that he could show anywhere in the Bible was God's tremendous love for humanity. That is the greatest display of God's glory. Anywhere, anywhere, any, you, can, you can find anything else, and it pales in comparison to Jesus, to God's love for humanity. So much so that he was willing to lay everything down. Think about how extravagant the love of the Father is. He gave up everything for us, laid it all down because he loves us so much. We can't even fathom loving somebody that way. Don't get me wrong, I love my kids, and if somebody comes against my kids, I'm going to stand up for my kids. I'm going to lay down my life for them, but not in the way that Jesus did. He laid his life down for everybody, even while they hated him. He showed his glory. He showed the glory of the Father and his tremendous love for us, and that is the greatest picture of God's glory that we could possibly see, God's tremendous love for us. What an awesome picture the cross is. Perfect display of God's glory. So why was he so committed? Because he wanted to glorify God and because of his great love for us. Um, I'd like to leave you with a, with a quote by, uh, by John Piper. Um, he, he summarizes everything I've just spent the last little bit of time talking to you guys about. Uh, he summarizes it in about two paragraphs. So I just want to share this with you um, and, and kind of leave it with this. He says that the suffering of the utterly innocent and infinitely holy God, Son of God in the place of utterly undeserving sinners, to bring us to everlasting joy is the greatest display of the glory of God's grace that ever was or ever could be. This was the moment, Good Friday. Just so you all know, that's the day Jesus was nailed to the cross that he suffered and died on our behalf. On Good Friday, this was the moment for which everything in the universe was planned. In in conceiving a universe in which to display the glory of his grace, God did not choose plan B. There could be no greater display of the glory of the grace of God than what happened at Calvary. You know, that's what it's all about. Wherever you are, whatever is going on around you today, know that there is a glorious God who is determined to love you so extravagantly 
that he gave everything for you, not out of compulsion, but freely and willingly because of his tremendous love for you. Let's pray together. Father, what an, what an awesome reality. What an awesome truth. And how arrogant of us to think um, we don't need you. Um, so, Father, I, I, I pray for your forgiveness. Because whenever I say how arrogant of us, that includes me, Lord. I often forget how desperately dependent on you I am. So, Father, I pray for your forgiveness. Um, Lord, and as we, we look at the cross, as we look at the price paid to redeem us, to purchase, to pay our ransom, to purchase us back, Father, we know it's because of your extravagant love for us. Father, a love that we can, we can only, only barely begin to comprehend. Um, Father, I thank you. Thank you, because without that tremendous love, where would we be? So, Father, I pray that what you would do today is that you would take this truth, that, that you desired the cross even more than you, you desired life, like your own physical life. That you laid down everything. God, I pray that you would let that truth drive us to worship you that we would be awestruck not by the beauty of your creation, but by the, the, the majesty of your love. Um, God, and I pray that that would drive us not to a place where we're, we stand on our own ability, but instead we just completely and totally realize our dependence on you. So, Father, show us how much we need you. Father, I want to pray for myself um, that you would forgive me of my sins, that you would remind me of who you are and that you would allow me to serve you. Father, and I pray that for us as a church. Um, I pray that we wouldn't be dependent on ourselves, that we wouldn't long to, to walk in our own ability and our own strength, but we would realize our own insufficiency and we would turn to you and thank you that you loved us so much from the beginnings of everything, from before the foundation of the earth was laid, that you loved us so much that you determined to send Jesus. Lord, for that we praise you. For that, we thank you. Lord, I pray that you would reveal yourself to, a way, to us in a way that is, that is new and that many might submit to you as a result of our time together in this word. Lord, I pray that we would turn to you and just praise you for who you are. So, Father, I pray that you would make this word effective as only you can. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.